Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast of St. Luke's in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses, and under the leadership of our senior pastor, Dr. Bob Long, we are a family of faith that seeks to share God's love and bring hope to the world. We invite you now to join us for a message of hope. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who curses you I will curse. And by you all the families of the earth shall bless themselves. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. This is the word of the Lord. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it the was The Lord buried. is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes Fear me not, lie down. I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. We know that in everything, God works for good for those May the God of hope fill you with all joy and Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful. I can do all things and can be strengthened. Looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Tomorrow is a federal holiday. It is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. It is a day that was created. The legislation was turned into law back in 1986 by President Ronald Reagan. It's a day that is set aside to encourage us to think about the life and the legacy of Dr. King and how he confronted all of us to think about the issue of how we're all children of God. We really are one family, and everybody deserves to be treated with dignity and respect. His birthday is actually January the 15th, tomorrow, and he would have been 95 years old. Whenever you think about the civil rights movement in the 1960s, you can't help but think about Dr. King. But you know, he wasn't the only one who was doing significant and meaningful things. Many of you may remember the name James Meredith. He too was significant in the movement. James Meredith is now 90 years old. He's still going strong. It turns out that he was born in Mississippi and he graduated high school in 1951. He joined the Air Force and he served his country for the next nine years. When he got out of the Air Force, he now had enough money and the opportunity to go to college. A law had been passed that says you cannot discriminate against someone because of the color of their skin, that people should be able to enroll and go to college. And so he had gone to Jackson College there in Mississippi, but he wound up being so inspired by the inaugural speech of Robert, I mean of uh, JFK, that he got to thinking, you know, I, I want to wind up going to my great university of my home state, the University of Mississippi. 
Ole Miss. And so it was that he, he decided to go enroll at Ole Miss. But no black person had ever enrolled at Ole Miss. But now it was the law. He went, he applied, and they said no. And so he applied again, and they said no. So he went to the new group of people who were working on civil rights in the earliest of the 1960s, and he said, I need someone to help me to file a lawsuit that I can get into Ole Miss. And they said, absolutely not. There is no way you are getting in to the University of Mississippi. And we have limited time, limited resources, and we're not going to spend them on that knowing there's no way you're getting in. Well, he wouldn't take no for an answer. And he kept coming back again and again going, I need some help. I need some help. And finally they said, all right, we have a lady over here. She is a volunteer, a recent graduate out of law school. We'll put her on your case. And so she filed suit for him to be able to be enrolled in Old Miss. And it quickly got moved up through the courts with the appeals all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court ruled and said, yes, James Meredith deserves to be enrolled in Ole Miss. So he came back and he applied again. And they said no again. And he applied again and they said no again. And so now they turned to Robert Kennedy, the Attorney General. And they said, okay, here's what we've done. Here's what the Supreme Court said. Here's what's still happening. And Robert Kennedy said, you're right. And so he said, I'm going to send federal marshals. And they came up with a plan. The federal marshals were going to come, and they're going to have James Meredith, and they're going to get there early on Monday morning. And when the light comes up and they open the doors, the federal marshals will usher James Meredith into the administration building, and he'll be able to register but the Ku Klux Klan got word of it. And so on Sunday night, they came and surrounded the administration building. They brought in a bulldozer. Because if things went badly, they were determined they would bulldoze down the administration building before they allowed a black man to register for classes there at Old Miss. The next morning when the light broke and the federal agents were there, so was the KKK. Everyone was armed, and soon a fight broke out, and two men were killed. Two men were killed because of a man who was wanting to register for college education. Well, now there was chaos, and JFK stepped in. He federalized the um, National Guard, and he sent 20,000 troops to Ole Miss. And now with 20,000 troops in Ole Miss, they restored order and the federal agents escorted James Meredith in and he was registered for classes. First black man ever to do so at the University of Mississippi. For the next two years, every day to every class, two federal agents had to escort him wherever he went. They had to go with him and sit in class and then to the next class. Some people were very happy that he was there. They were very kind. 
but the majority were not. They would harass him, call names. It was very difficult for him. But you know, he never became angry or hateful or striking out at them. Because in some ways, he really didn't care. You see, he was there to get an education. He loved learning. And it's like, that's what I'm going to do. And that's what he did. And in the end, he would graduate. First one ever to graduate from Ole Miss. And he did so well that he then wanted to apply to law school. And he applied to law school and he got accepted. A little college called Columbia. And he went and got his degree. But then instead of becoming a lawyer, he actually became a stockbroker. And everybody thought that he was probably going to be some sort of an activist and keep on leading in the, the movement. But that's really not what he was about. He just wanted to prove that anyone who had the ability and the drive and the knowledge should be allowed to go get an education. And that's what he had done. So now he had a good job. He had a good career. He, he had his education. He got married. He had children. His oldest child, a boy, grew up just like his daddy. He loved learning. And so he did very well in high school. And when he graduated high school, he too wanted to go to college, and he got accepted and went to Harvard. He got his undergraduate degree at Harvard, and then he got a master's degree at Harvard, and then he applied for the Ph.D. program in business at the University of Mississippi. It had come full circle. He came back home, and he worked hard, and he got his Ph.D. in business, and he graduated number one in his class. And when he did, I want to read you what James Meredith said. More than all things that I've said and done, I feel like my son has validated what I did to be able to show that any person, regardless of the color of their skin, should have the opportunity to go to school and become the person that they have been created to be. He showed it, and it was significant, so much so that on the 50th anniversary of him being enrolled there at Ole Miss, they dedicated a statue in his honor there on the campus. For Ole Miss had come to realize how important this is for the university, for the state, for our nation, that everybody should have the opportunity for an education and become the person that they have been created to be. And when they created it and they dedicated his statue, they interviewed James Meredith and they asked him, why did you do this? Why did you put yourself through this? To where you suddenly had to have federal marshals taking you to class every day for several years and all the harassment you received, why did you do it? James Meredith said, I had a responsibility, and I decided that if you pass on your responsibility to someone else, and we all do that, well, nothing ever happens. Nobody handpicked me to integrate Ole Miss. I felt like I had a divine responsibility to speak up. A divine responsibility 
to speak up. I believe we all have a divine responsibility to speak up wherever we confront prejudice and hatred and bigotry. We're called to speak up. A number of you have asked, what is this blue pin that a number of us on staff have been wearing? A little blue square. You'll see it in the lapels of our um, jackets or on dresses or collars. And what it is, it's actually a part of a program called Stand Up to Jewish Hate. I told you about it months ago. It's a program created by Robert Kraft Foundation. Robert Kraft is the owner of the New England Patriots. He is Jewish. And he helped fund a program where they're having commercials. You'll probably see them running if you watch the playoffs in which it is simply saying anti-Semitism is on the rise. And crimes against Jewish people are going through the roof right now in our country. And with these on the rise, they wanted people, especially people who aren't Jewish, to stand up and say, that's wrong. We're not going to buy into that. And in St. Luke's, we feel strongly about this issue that everyone is a child of God. And it doesn't matter what your religion is or whether you're white or red or black or brown. It doesn't matter your sexual orientation. Everyone is a child of God who deserves to be treated with dignity and respect. And that's where we begin. And so for us wearing this blue square says we're going to stand up to Jewish hate, but to all kinds of hate and prejudice. We have a divine Responsibility. Abraham had a divine responsibility. In our scripture lesson this morning, we were reading about Abraham and how God came to him and said, I'm going to build a great nation through you, and I want to bless you to be a blessing. And all the families of the earth will be blessed by you. It was a divine responsibility to go forward and to let God lead him and to be a blessing. I'm going to continue on the sermon series that Wendy Lambert started last week entitled A Year in the Bible, in which we're trying to look at these stories and find a fundamental truth on these different characters. We could talk about Abraham for several months, but we have one week to look at Abraham this week. Next week, we're going to wind up looking at Jacob. The next week we're going to look at Joseph. The next two weeks we're going to look at Moses. We're going to be moving along as we look at these different people and what we believe is some of the important truth that Scripture is sharing with us for today. And so we look at Abraham today and how God asked him to go. A divine divine responsibility to let God use him in helping to be a blessing. I believe We all have that divine responsibility. So what do we learn from Abraham? I think two important things for us this morning. First of all, God said to Abraham, I'm going to build a great nation through you. What does a great nation look like? What's a great nation look like? I remember years ago, there was 80 of us from St. Luke's that traveled to Israel. 
And it was my first time to ever go to Israel. I was excited about it, to go to the Holy Land. We went there to Jerusalem. And of course, you got to go to go see where the temple had once stood. We went to the Wailing Wall. Remember how all this began to unfold. What happened was in Solomon's day, he built this beautiful temple for God. And then it was destroyed. And then Herod came along and he wanted to build it bigger than ever before. He had to expand the temple mount, the base. And he brings in all these huge stones and rocks. It's amazing engineering. And they built this huge wall to create this additional space to build a huge temple. But then in 70 CE, the Jews revolted against Rome and Rome came and destroyed the temple. And then you had the Ottoman Empire come along and conquer the Holy Land. And they now wanted to build a mosque because they believed there on that temple mount, there is a rock from which Muhammad ascended into heaven, talked to God and got a vision and came back. And so this rock is a holy place where Mohammed had been and ascended to heaven and came back. And so they built that beautiful dome above it, and it's known as the Dome of the Rock, which is the same place it had been the Temple of Solomon. And so today, the Jews cannot rebuild their temple. It's a sacred place to Muslims. And so they go to the Wailing Wall, this wall, and when they can touch the wall, that's how they make contact, they feel like, with their temple. Years, thousands of years ago. It is a sacred place. They write their prayers on paper, stick it between the rocks. Well, it was very special to go and to stand there with all these Jewish people praying and us being praying and standing there touching these rocks. Then we went up on the Temple Mount. And it was very special there because I'm standing there thinking, this is where Jesus walked. I don't know exactly the places, but he did walk on the Temple Mount to stand there. You're thinking, I truly am walking where Jesus walked. And then I look over and I see all of these Muslims coming to go into the Dome of the Rock for a time of prayer. And I had one of those aha spiritual moments that you, know, you have a few of those through your lifetime. You take with you forever. And I'm standing there and I'm suddenly thinking, you know, we all have a lot in common here. We all will trace our spiritual heritage back to Father Abraham. The Jews will say, yes, it was Abraham who is called by God a divine responsibility to go forward and it is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of his sons, Joseph, and, and you have the creation of Israel. For Christians, we certainly believe in Jesus, who was Jewish. And we would trace our history all the way back to Jesus and then to the Hebrew Scriptures, and we too would trace ourselves back to Father Abraham. And the Muslims would trace themselves back to Abraham, but through Ishmael, through Abraham and Hagar, and now to Ishmael, their son. And I thought, we all share Father Abraham, to whom God came and said, I'm going to build a great nation of you, and you will be blessed to be a blessing, so that all the peoples of the earth 
can be blessed. A great nation is where we all recognize that we have more in common than that which separates us. And we start to care about one another's well-being because we're all children of God. Did you remember the Human Genome Project? I was talking to a few people who deal with that after the first service. And you remember the Human Genome Project? It came out in 1995 in which we decided we wanted to figure out what made up a human being. You know, we'd learned so much about our, um, all of our chromosomes and there's DNA and we have genes. Well, what, what makes them up? What makes us us? And so we spent over $3 billion, 2,000 scientists around the world, the United States, Germany, France, England, Japan, China, trying to identify our genes and what makes up our genes. Okay, in layman's terms, simply. What they basically discovered was over a process until 2003, they discovered 92% of the answers. They didn't get all the answers until two years ago, 2022. But what they discovered was there's about 30,000 genes that make us up. And what makes up these genes is all these chemicals and combinations of chemicals, and it takes about three billion of these chemicals and combinations to make us up. Of those three billion that make up our genes, there's about three million that are unique to each one of us individually. That of those genes, well, that's going to determine how tall you are, how short you are, what's the color of your hair, what's the color of your skin, the color of your eyes, are you male or female? Those three million are all a little different. That's why your DNA is unique. And I know three million may sound like a whole lot, but remember it took three billion to make you as the person. And the individuality is three million. That's 1%. 99% of us we share in common. And what do we focus on? The 1% that makes us different. And if we would focus on what makes us the same, what we share in common, instead of the 1% that makes us different, how would we treat each other? How would we look at one another? A great nation is a place where people realize we have so much in common in terms of who we are, and so you care about one another. I loved the book Tuesdays with Maury. You remember it was a book about Maury Schwartz. It was written by Mitch Albin. Mitch Albin had been a reporter for the Detroit Free Press, and his old college professor was Maury Schwartz, and he had developed ALS. ALS, you remember, is a disease that starts at your feet, moves up your legs, and will move all the way up to your lungs and your heart. Your body is slowly beginning to atrophy, and when it hits your lungs and hearts, that's when you die. And yet the whole time, your brain is working perfectly well. It's just your body is slowly dying. It's a very difficult disease. And so 
Mitch was coming every Tuesday to see Maury and talk about life and death and whatever wisdom Maury wanted to pass along. And when it got near the end and Maury was close to dying, he could no longer feed himself. He could no longer dress himself or bathe himself. Somebody had to do everything for Maury. He was close to death. And Mitch came and they were sitting and they were visiting about life, about death. I'm going to read you what Maury had to say. The problem, Mitch, is that we don't believe we're as much alike as we are. White and blacks, Catholics and Protestants, men and women. If we saw each other as more alike, we might very easily join in one big human family in the world to care about the family the way we care about our own. But believe me, when you're dying, you see it is true. We have the same beginning, birth. We all have the same end, death. So how different can we be? Invest in the human family. Invest in people. Build the little community of those you love and those who love you. In the beginning of life, we're infants, and we need others to survive, right? At the end of life, you get like me. You need others to survive, right? Maury's voice dropped to a whisper. But here's the secret, Mitch. In between, we need others as well. We do need each other. And if we saw each other as children of God, and we focused how we were alike rather than the 1% that makes us different, then we would create a different nation, a family of faith, a great nation where we know that we are blessed to be a blessing so that all families can be blessed. I think we have a divine, a divine responsibility. And secondly, you know, God told Abraham to go forth to a land that he would show him. He's going to leave behind everything that's familiar family, friends, his home. Leave behind all that you've come to know and love and you're comfortable with, and I want you to go to a land that I will show you. And Abraham would go. But Abraham would go not just for himself. He would go for all those that would follow him. For God said, you're going to have as many descendants as the sands of the sea. This isn't just about you, Abraham, and going. You're going for all the people who will follow. You know, I'm at a point in life that I think about that more often than I have in the past. That I think about the decisions I make. And they're not always decisions that are going to be, oh, so special for me or make me happy or make my life easier. I tend to think more about the decisions and how is this going to affect those who follow me. 
how my children be affected? My grandchildren? My great-grandchildren who are yet to be born? Great-great-grandchildren? A family of faith? Friends? My nation? To make decisions not for my sense of well-being and happiness, but for those who will follow. It sometimes requires sacrifice. It means leaving behind sometimes all those things that feel familiar and good and easy, but to saying we have a divine responsibility to let God lead us into the future because God is blessing us to be a blessing for you to think about those who will be following you and how are you living and how are you willing to sacrifice to be a blessing. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. really was an amazing man, lived an incredible life. His father was Michael King and he lived in Atlanta, Georgia and he was the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church. It turned out that when Michael took over as the senior pastor there at Ebenezer Baptist Church, it was in 1934. And in 1934, he had the opportunity to go to Germany, to Berlin, to a, a conference for Baptist pastors. An incredible opportunity. They started in Rome to learn about the church. They went to Jerusalem and then on to, uh, to Berlin. This was 1934. The Nazis had already come to power. The Nazis were talking about the Aryan culture, the superiority of white people. People of color were considered inferior. Jews were considered vermin, needed to be exterminated. He was hearing these things. He also started learning all about Martin Luther, the great reformer in the 1500s there in Germany. And he went to go see where Martin Luther nailed his 95 complaints, his 95 theses against the church. And how he stood up and where was he tried. And then he saw where he hid in a castle as they searched for Martin Luther. And he was so overwhelmed with Martin Luther and his life and the way he tried to help people be free and, and be treated in a way where everybody can read the Bible and you have the freedom to think. He was so taken with what he learned about this reformer there in Germany that when he came home, he actually went and had his name changed from Michael King to Martin Luther King Sr. He had a five-year-old child and he was junior and so he changed his name as well to Martin Luther King Jr. Now that's a very biblical thing to do because you read in the Bible how when someone has a spiritual experience and they are changed in a fundamental way, their name changes. Jacob becomes I'm Israel. And you have Saul who becomes Paul. And you have Simon who becomes Peter. And whenever that happens, to know their name is to know something about who they are. And this is what Michael King was doing to say, this is who we are. People who want to help lead a reformation, a reformation, to lead in a way where things will be different and people will be free and treated with respect and dignity regardless 
of the color of their skin. And so that's what Martin Luther King Jr. grew up with. And sure enough, as a young adult, he became very involved. He too became a pastor and began to speak up and become involved. It's hard to believe that in our country, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, you had signs when you walked down the street that said, whites only, or colored water fountain, or a colored restroom, or no coloreds allowed in this restaurant. I mean, it's unbelievable when you go back and really learn about it. If you want to know what it was like, go back and watch the movie 42, about Jackie Robinson and what life was like in America in those days. It was so very hard. And so there were people who were wanting to stand up and say, we have civil rights. And they began working in the early 60s to try to change things. It was in 1963 they decided to have a march on Washington to make known we feel like things need to change. We need to be able to get a loan to buy a house. We need to have the opportunity for education. And so they hoped a thousand people would show up. A quarter of a million people showed up. You may remember, if you were alive then, as I was down the Washington Mall, and there from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. It was amazing. They had people lined up to give speeches and people there to sing and to make a statement. And one of the keynote speakers was going to be Martin. And on the night before he was going to speak, he was there in the hotel with his advisors and they were going over his speech and they were trying to write it. And he said, I think I want to tell them about the dream. And he said, Martin, you've told people about the dream. What you need is something new, something fresh. That's old. So they worked on it. But Martin wasn't really happy about it. And finally he said, I'm going up to my room so that I can talk to the Lord. And he retired. The next day he came and it came his turn. Mahalia Jackson had just been singing and she had inspired people. And she was now on the platform when he stood up and he had out his notes and he began reading his speech. And it was good. But it wasn't connecting that much. And it was Mahalia Jackson who said, tell him about the dream, Martin. Tell him about the dream. And he set aside his notes and he stepped away from being a speaker to a Baptist preacher. And now he began to speak from his heart. I want to read you some of what he said. I have a dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day, even in the state of Mississippi, sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, we will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children one day will live in a nation where they are not judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today 
And when this happens, we will allow freedom to ring, and we will let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city. We will be able to speed up that day when all God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will all be able to join hands and sing the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we're free at last. It's considered one of the greatest speeches ever. And tomorrow that speech will be heard in parts all across our country and literally around the world. As it called us to think about what does it mean to say we're all God's children? Then everybody deserves to be treated with dignity and respect. He continued to work on. You know, Martin Luther King never endorsed violence, never participated in violence. He said that's not how Jesus would do it. He would do it in love. He would confront the truth, but you do it in love. It was in 1968, the sanitation workers in Memphis were on a strike. And they were striking because they didn't make enough money working their full-time job to put a roof over their head and food on the table. And they were striking for better pay and to say, we want to be treated with dignity like we're men. And Martin wanted to go stand and support with them. But before he did, he wanted to go see his mother and father. It was a Sunday. They went to church at Ebenezer Baptist Church. And they came home from church, and then they had a meal together as a family. It truly had been a, a lovely day. They went out to sit together on the patio in the backyard. And Martin then wanted to talk to his mother. He said to her, they tell me there are people who want to kill me. It isn't just rumors and innuendos. There are assassins out there and there's money behind it. The FBI says they don't know when or where. And his mother jumps up and she said, I don't want to hear this. I don't want to hear this. And She's crying, and he goes over to comfort her, and he said, I don't want to have to do this, but we've come so far, I feel like I must do this, and I won't be afraid. He left from there, and he went to Memphis four days later on the balcony of the Lorraine Hotel, an assassin's bullet killed him. He was 39 years old. He did not endorse violence and did not participate in it, but rather he preached love and they killed him. A greater love has no man than to lay down his life for his friends, Jesus said. He had a divine responsibility 
to stand up and to speak about what does it mean to say we are all the children of God and everybody deserves to be treated with dignity and respect. God said to Abraham, I'm going to build a great nation through you. I will bless you to be a blessing so that all the families of the earth are blessed through you. A divine responsibility to go. And I believe that is our divine responsibility for you and I to commit to live in such a way that what we say and what we do will seek to share God's love and bring hope in this world. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen. You've been listening to the sermon podcast of St. Luke's Methodist Church in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses. Learn all about St. Luke's different services and programs on our website, stlukesokc.org. We trust you will experience God's love and hope throughout this week.